Hey y'all. Shift with Andrea up late. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Uh, for those of you who might be new here, this is a true crime podcast slash YouTube channel slash circus and everything all in one. I've got a fun uh, recurring co-host with me tonight. This is BC Sanders, co-host of the Disruptors podcast with BC and Ski. Hey, BC. Hello. How you doing? <laughs> Wonderful. Good. You ready to break down this case with me? Yes. All right. We're going to get into it, guys. If you're new here again, uh, we are every Tuesday night at 8, 7 central on YouTube on the Andrea Uplate YouTube channel. If you don't watch it there, you can listen wherever you stream podcasts um, a day or two after we air live. And then, uh, yeah, you can find me on IG at the same handle as well. So we tonight are going to be discussing Ellen Greenberg. If you have not, I totally encourage you. I mean, you know, when this one's over to go back and listen to Ellen Greenberg part one. That's what I covered last week. Uh, I broke down the story as best I could, gave you as many details as possible. And then tonight we're doing a little part two. We've done this formula before and I kind of like it when a case is very detailed like this and ends on a very questionable note. I like doing a part two and really kind of getting into the weeds, as I say often um, with it. And so BC here, uh, my co-host tonight, is a retired homicide lieutenant and has a ton of experience in the field doing all kinds of things. So he's a great uh, co-host to bring on and someone to kind of uh, shoot the bull with and, and ask some questions, too. So we appreciate having you on tonight, BC. And uh, let's do it. So, again, we're going to it's Ellen Greenberg, but go back and listen to part one if you have not. Ellen Greenberg was, at the time of her death, a 27-year-old first-grade school teacher in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She was born in June of 83. I'm going to give you guys just a very quick kind of meat and potatoes of the case, all right? So if you haven't heard it before, you'll at least get the idea of what happened here. Um, in January, or excuse me, in January of 2011... Ellen was working, like I said, as a first grade school teacher there in Pennsylvania. She was engaged to her fiance of uh, three years. Well, they had just recently gotten engaged over the summer, but had been together for three years. His name is Sam Goldberg. All right. So they lived together somewhere called the Venice Flats apartment there in, in Philadelphia. It's a really nice apartment complex. Uh, I've said before, it kind of appears a little bit more like a nice hotel than than what you picture when you think of apartments, but they're there in the city. Uh, so they've kind of got what you need there. They were um, on the third floor is where their apartment actual residence was located. On the first floor is a gym, and that's going to be in question here in a moment. We will talk about the utilization of some security footage and whatnot that occurred that they have from the hallways uh, in the place. We don't, unfortunately, have any security footage that actually aims toward the door of their residence because that would put a lot of questions to rest uh, if we had that. So I have invited BC on. He's going to he's kind of read through the case. He listened to last week's show. So we're going to start getting into it now. So on January 26th of 2011, there was a blizzard coming. So Ellen was sent home from her job at the school early. So she was happy to go home. She had spoken with her mother that morning around 7 a.m. on both of their way to work. So uh, that matters because Ellen's 
not necessarily mental stability, but her demeanor, her affect that day comes in question later on. And mom said that she was pleasant and joyful and happy to be heading to school that morning. So around 2.30 p.m., Ellen called a restaurant. It was called the Ventry Restaurant. And we don't know if she was making plans for later or canceling plans for later or maybe just ordering takeout. But we have that timestamp of 2.30 calling that restaurant. Then she sends a text at 3.47. Uh, that's the last time we see her reaching out to anyone outside of her home uh, via technology. And then we do have computer activity on her own personal laptop at 4.46 uh, PM. Now I will tell you, there's some, um, differing accounts of that. I've seen some places that list 446. And as of most recently brushing up for a part two, I then found what I think would probably be more legitimate sources that state 1446. So in 24 hour time, 1446 is actually 246, meaning she got home and two hours prior uh, than what I just said was on her computer. Those times don't make a ton of difference either way, but just know that that might be the case that she was on that computer a little earlier than we first thought. So Sam, her fiance decides to go to the gym. At this time, Sam was working as a TV producer there locally. So he goes down, gets on the elevator and goes down to their first floor gym there at the apartment. We do have video surveillance footage of this. So we have Sam entering the gym there at the apartments at 4.50 p.m., 4.50 p.m. to work out. We have activity of him again coming back out of that gym at 5.26 p.m. So we have a 36-minute window that he was, as far as we know, inside that gym, okay? So leaves the gym at, 4, at 5.26 and gets back to their apartment door around 5.30ish, right? He's got to hop on the elevator, get up to third floor, and walk down the hall. So he gets there. So the door is locked at this point. I'm going to show you guys, if you're watching, what that lock looked like. Don't worry, guys. Also, if you did listen last week, I'm not going to spend very much time on the case here. We're just going to go over some highlights. Um, the lock on this door, and this is important for the case, is actually what they consider a slide or a swing bar lock. So picture a lot of the hotels you've been in, uh, things like this, where the like double metal bar will swing over from one, like in this instance, the swing part of the lock is on the door frame. It's affixed there. And then on the actual door is like a little knob. And this metal piece swim, swings over that knob, rendering the door unable to open. Now you can open it about, I would say, would you say two to four inches BC with those mm -hmm. kinds of locks? Somewhere between two to four inches. But the idea is that once this is locked, that, well, the idea that is painted here is that once they've locked this door, you can't, you wouldn't lock it and then exit it because they say that you cannot lock it like this from the outside, from the exterior of the door. Uh, we'll talk about what's flawed in that theory here pretty soon. So, he cannot get in. He's getting frustrated. He's calling her name. He's pounding on the door. She's not coming to the door. So per Sam's account, this is when he starts uh, calling her phone, texting her phone. He even eventually sends an email, which I mean, I know how often I check my emails. So don't try to rush in the in the door by emailing me. You, you ain't getting in. So uh like I said, that swing bar had been engaged. It appeared to be so from the inside. So then he starts texting her. And I want to, I want you guys to listen to these texts. Keep an open mind. 
he's frustrated. He's frustrated that she's not opening the door. He's not worried at this point. I think he's more irritated with her. Uh, but even in that vein, even if he's annoyed with her, listen to the kinds of texts that he sends. Okay. So he says, um, he says, hello. And then he says, I'm getting pissed. And he says, hello again. And then he texts her, you better have an excuse. And then he says, what the F? And then just, ah, like A-H-H-H. And then he says, you have no idea. So these are texts coming from her fiance to her when she is presumably inside. Maybe he's annoyed. Maybe they got in a fight before he left and he thinks she's just purposefully not opening the door and he's getting pissed off. Do you find any flaws or red flags in any of those texts, BC? Um, you know, assuming that that was the circumstance that he was already just annoyed with her. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it reads. It just be like, he's upset, annoyed, using some kind of strong language there. Mm -hmm. Not, um, but yeah, I, without reading into it too much, but yeah, it's a little, sure. So it's, it sounds like he's getting a little angry. Right. Right. I don't love that. You better have an excuse because I get, I find like a threatening vein in that. Um, undertone in that. It just sounds a little, I don't know. You can get angry with someone, but these just kind of start and probably my lens is colored from the rest of this case, but that's just an interesting thing to say. Someone, if you're just, if you're just irritated, you know what I mean? So these are some of the texts he sends her. He then goes off to the lobby. Eventually he kind of goes back and forth and he requests the aid of a security guard there in the first floor of the lobby of the apartment complex. And so he's asking this guy to come help him get into his apartment. So he wants the guy to kind of like just bust down the door for him. And the guy explains in no uncertain terms, he cannot do that. That's against apartment policy, you know, essentially telling Sam he's going to need to go find a locksmith or something like that. He can't just go busting down everybody's doors, you know, anybody's door that might ask, even if he lives there. So he does not, in fact, help Sam get into the apartment. Uh, finally, Sam says that he kicks the door in. Uh, this is about an hour later. He got home from the gym around 530. It's closer to 630 almost now uh, when he gets into the apartment. He, his words were that he kicks the door in. Okay, so we're going to talk about what that door frame looks like and what the hardware from that lock looks like if, in fact, he did kick the door in and what we really have a picture of. He says that he finds Ellen uh, lying there. Uh, the way he then tells authorities when they get there is that she was lying uh, with her back kind of uh, picture her kind of sitting up against cabinets, but head slumped forward, arms by her side, legs out in front of her. Um, and she was not responding. So I am going to let you guys hear a little bit of a 911 call, and then I will quickly go through the rest of it, and we're going to break this down because um, it just gets a little bit more interesting as moments go on. All righty here. If I just walked to my apartment, my fiance is on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come help. 4601 Flat Rock Road. Is it the house or apartment? Oh, oh no. Oh, oh no. It's an apartment. What apartment number? <laughs> Please hurry, Where please. Where is she bleeding from? She, I don't know. I can't tell. She's... No. So you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She. I don't know. I, I'm looking at her right now. She. I don't. I can't see anything. She doesn't. There's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from. Can't tell where the blood's coming from. It's. I think her head. I think she hit her head. I think. I think she but might it's all everywhere. Okay, it's everywhere. I think she might have fallen. Do you know yeah. what happened? She, she, she may have slipped. There's blood on the on the table. Her her face is a little purple. Okay, hold on for rescue for her. Stay on the phone. I just, I just walked into my apartment. My fiance is on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come help. 4601 Flat, Flat Rock, Rock Road. Is this a house or apartment? Oh, oh no. Oh, oh no. It's an apartment. What apartment number? <laughs> Please hurry, Where please. Where is she bleeding from? She, I don't know. I can't tell. She's... No. <laughs> so you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She, okay. I don't know. I, I'm looking at her right now. She, I don't, I can't see anything. She doesn't, there's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from, can't Ellie. Where the blood's coming from? It's, I think her head. I think she hit her head, I think. I think but it's, it's everywhere. Okay, it's everywhere. Okay, guys. So if you listen there, I've got a picture of uh, Sam and Ellen up here on the screen if you are watching. But if you listen to that 911 call, you hear him. That's the longest. We're going to play a few clips. The rest are just a few seconds each. This is where he says that her face is a little purple, if you notice that. And then he says, but, and it just sounds, it sounds interesting what he's saying about, about her. So when he says her face is a little purple, Tell me if that feels like it would be consistent with um, a stabbing because we learn pretty soon that that's actually what's happened to Ellen. All right, so we're going to play another little bit of his call. Look at her chest. I need you to calm down and I need you to look at her chest. It's really I don't think she is. I really don't think she is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? <laughs> She's on her back. So okay, I bring look her... at her chest and tell me if it's going up and down, up and down. I don't see her. Look at her chest. I need you to calm down, and I need you to look at her chest. It's really. I don't think she. I really don't think she is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? <laughs> okay. If you heard that, he says that she's flat on her back, and at the end, it kind of cuts out. But he says what sounds like, "Should I bring her up?" So I tried to kind of play that again for you, but it says. Yeah, she's flat on her back, and he says, should I bring her? And it sounds like he's saying, should I bring her up? So then this one gets pretty nice and interesting here. Let's listen to one more clip here. Get there. I want you to keep her phone. Oh, her God. Hello? Yeah, hi. Okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, I, I have to, right? Okay. So get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay. They get there. I want you to keep her phone. Oh, God. Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, get I, I have to, right? All right. Who heard that? She says, would you be willing to do CPR now? He, she asks him if he knows how to do CPR. He says no. And she said, would you be willing? And he says, I guess I have to, right? Um. All right. Let's not read too much into that. Maybe he doesn't want to get his clothes dirty. Who really knows? Um, all right. This is worth listening to you guys. We've only got a couple more to play, but once we play these, I think it's going to set the scene a little bit more for you as we get into the details of this case. 
Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay, take it there. I want you to keep her flat oh, on her God. Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, get I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay, take it there. I want you to keep her flat oh, on her Oh, God. Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, get I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay, take it there. I want you to keep her flat oh, on her God. back. Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Okay. Did y'all feel like I did there? Because I don't love the way he says, oh, she stabbed herself. Um, there's another one. We're not going to play the rest of them for you right now. You can go back and listen to episode one or part one, if you will, um, to hear the rest of those 911 calls. They are interesting. Again, that's a picture of Sam and Ellen there up on the screen. I'm going to go on and take that off and we can start talking. Uh, so he's calling 911 and you heard at least a good portion of his demeanor there. He says that he's found her, you know, she's lying there. Um, now the 911 dispatcher asks him, I counted seven times. She says, okay, is she on her back? Is she lying on her back? Look at her chest. Is her chest moving up and down? He confirms that she's lying on her back. Uh, what did you get from that call, BC? Yeah. You don't want to like read too much into every 911 call being the exact same because you're dealing with different people who react differently in stressful situations. Some of the common denominators usually when you're hearing 911 calls in which a loved one uh, has, has discovered you know, someone who's attacked or, or in this case, uh, appears to be stabbed, that oftentimes you'll hear a rushed cadence in their voice. And especially if they don't know life-saving measures and the only person that potentially can help them is on the phone as the operator, oftentimes they're asking them, yes, what do you need me to do? Yes, I can do that. I can move them and just begging for more info yes which is uh heartbreaking to hear people doing that and to hear people screaming and crying oftentimes people are yelling get the ambulance here get help here to the point where they may even forget to give the address or whatever right once again everyone reacts a little different i i do think that's a very great uh, great question that the operator asked about are you willing to I think that was the phrase. Yeah. Are you willing to? I like the way she worded that. Yes, because most people are going to move right past that. Of course, I'm willing to. Like, tell me what I can do to help. So, yeah, that that's kind of a that's that's something to note. Definitely. Yeah. I also, uh, you know, the way he says when she says to begin CPR and she's explaining that to him. uh and then now he's saying, oh, a knife. And it sounds like an afterthought, which if Ellen had been found propped up against cabinets, slumped forward, like he tells investigators, and in fact, like she looks when they get there, which we'll talk about that, then maybe it would, you know, he's taken in everything. He's just busted down this door after trying to get a hold of her for an hour She's lying there with some blood. She's not responsive. Okay, maybe he doesn't see the knife immediately. But 
if things are like he's telling this 911 dispatcher that she is lying flat on her back. She is flat on her back wearing a zip up hoodie. And it's not until this man goes to unzip her hoodie to try to start CPR that he surprisingly sees this knife. Y'all, the knife was a 12 and a half, or excuse me, the knife was, um, let me think, I think about 12 and a half, 13 centimeter knife. So it was, or the blade itself was, meaning it was a six inch blade on this knife. And almost all of it was inside this woman. So the handle sticking out, this was not a small knife. Uh, and he's acting as though he's, I think he's feigning shock to have found it. What did you think when you heard that? Um, and, and we've talked about this kind of in the past, but you always want to recreate what is happening because we can't see him. We can only hear his voice and hear his details. And then you take that, compare it to what officers encounter when they get on the scene. So you said you'll get into that in a minute. If you're imagining what he's saying, and she is, in fact, flat on the ground, and she's wearing a zip-up hoodie. Uh, I would assume if the knife is in the body, and it's gone through the fabric of the hoodie, the handle will be protruding out at some sort, then it will be pretty easily visible. Seen. Yeah, mm -hmm. or seen. Mm -hmm. And that's one where also, if you're at the crime scene or you have crime scene photos, you can tell some handles of a steak knife can be white or, or a very... Light, a lighter color compared to what the hoodie is. So it will definitely stand out. So her hoodie, uh, I'm glad you asked that, was dark gray <laughs> and the knife was kind of like a wood grain. Um, and if you will, like the, you know, some are kind of shinier, like a sleeker mm -hmm. than others. So it wasn't like a um, dull porous wood. It was like kind of like almost like it had finished, but it's kind of a wood grain brownish knife handle against a dark gray hoodie. Okay. Either way, between four and six inches of a handle is sticking out of her. We find out later her chest. Um, and if she in theory is lying on her back, like he says, maybe first pass, he doesn't see it because he's, you know, he's in shock. Mm -hmm. uh, but after she has asked him seven times, if Ellen is lying on her back, mm -hmm. you'd think yeah. we wouldn't be so surprised here. I think for me, it's not even necessarily what he says. It's how he says it. It mm -hmm. sounds like when, when someone has to make up something and they're not good at lying. Yes. So the, and I'm not getting into right, wrong on his side. I'm just saying the cadence in the voice does seem like it changes pushing. Yeah. And almost pushing away the point at which you have to describe this knife. And exactly. It is. It's like, I think that I equated it the other day to, you know, when you're a kid and you dread all afternoon when you come home from school and all night long and all the next morning. And that next day when mom's dropping you off in the drop off line at school and right before you have to open the door and grab your bag and get out, you say, here's my report card or sign this thing where I got in trouble yeah. at the very end. You've been dreading it and you have to say it. It's like, he's putting off acknowledging uh, a weapon this knife because once he does it's on like once he says there's a knife everything changes because as far as 911 was aware before this is an unresponsive female lying on her back in her kitchen that's it that's all she knows so when you hear knife in the chest time's a ticking and he knows that and it's like he's not trying to get around to that any earlier than he has to also, and I can't remember, does he describe any blood 
being around until he says something about the knife. I mean, he did. I think later, uh, y'all will have yeah. to play these calls again, but yeah, later at some point he does mention a little bit. He said that her hands were a little bit warm and then he'll say, I don't know if that means anything. And then he said that her face, like I said, in the very first one that we listened to, he said her face looks a little purple. Mm. Um, we find out later that by the time authorities get there, her core, so her torso was still warm to the touch on the front and back. Mm -hmm. Her extremities were lukewarm and her hands and feet were starting to actually get a bit cold to the touch, which is exactly how that goes. And in this amount of time, it's going to start at the fingertips and toes and move up. Basically your core will be the last thing to get cold. Mm -hmm. um, so he mentions that her hands are warm and, you know, he doesn't know, he doesn't say a lot about blood at first. He then starts to talk about a little bit of blood. But the call that I'm not playing for you guys for brevity's sake, and also because you can hear it on part one, is um, a little bit later, the 911 dispatcher says something about when he says, oh, a knife. Uh, and he says, you know, I don't know if you caught it, but he says, she, she stabbed herself. That's right. interesting. So he, yeah. his first go was she stabbed herself. And then he says a little bit later, he says, or maybe she fell, she could have fallen on the knife. Either way, what's he doing to you? What does it sound like to you, BC? Yeah. Unfortunately, it, it leans towards that kind of um, alibi or that way of it, trying to explain how she got these injuries um, and that he would not be responsible for them. And that she solely is responsible for this knife in her chest. Like he didn't even point towards someone broke in or right. who did this or what happened. Yes. And then, so then looking at it um, and some of the notes I made earlier was, and I could be wrong, but it seems like during the investigation, because this door is locked and he has to force entry, then therefore there's no idea or any anything mentioned about a third party being involved a person breaking in like you said attacking her and stabbing her mm -hmm. it sounds like that it's all either people looking at it saying either he did it or she did it mm -hmm. and the way this is going it sounds like he's already during the call trying to explain these injuries and i again that we always use that term red flag or mm -hmm. indicator or something we need to make note of is this idea of during the actual 911 call, the emphasis seems to be on describing like her hands being warm. I don't know what that means. Well, well I don't know why we're Does why it we're need to mean anything? Exactly, exactly. Um, and then just that. So, um, and describing, oh, well, she must have stabbed herself or maybe she fell on the knife. Like, I, I hate to, to speculate and that sort of thing. I would just say those are obviously things that investigators will make a note of. And you, you begin to look at these things and see if they do add up. Now, something like that will become important if there's a history of self-harm. Sure. If there's a history of potentially having some type of schizophrenic episodes or where people believe maybe something's in their body, a probe or something, they need to cut it out. But you know what I mean? Like yep. that, those psychosis, but, but I don't think there was any of that. So, yeah. So we can talk briefly about her uh, mental health history. Her parents will say that in the weeks and months leading up to her death, she had started to see at their encouragement, um, a therapist. 
she was experiencing anxiety, but whenever she was asked why or what was going on, she would chalk it up to her school. I guess there had been some children. Uh, they were kind of giving her a run for her money. Uh, they did say that her her behavior overall and demeanor overall had not changed. She was very happy and very bubbly, but she was starting to just express to others that she had some anxiety. Anxiety does not equal suicidal. I'm not saying that she could not have been suicidal, but no one, including her therapist, has come back to say, and she did, of course, you know, depose. She, she spoke. Um, she's never, she said that, in fact, Ellen was not suicidal to all of her account uh, professionally in talking to her that she did experience anxiety and that they had tried a couple of different medications to combat that. She had been on Zoloft. She had been on, um, I believe, maybe some Xanax for a moment, and she had most recently been prescribed Clonopin but had not been on it for very, very long, long enough that trace amounts were found in her system and they were exactly the dosages that would be consistent with what her therapist prescribed, meaning she was taking them as indicated. So um, she had, in fact, even sent her mother a text just like I think a day or two prior to her death saying that, um, thank God the clonopin works. I feel great. Like it was kind of finally these things take a few days to get in your system and really kind of start to make you feel their effects in a, you know, in a positive or negative way. And so she was finally starting to feel these effects and was actually very happy for it. Also, she had an appointment with her therapist the day after her death. So let's say if in theory, she's kind of feeling yucky or whatever, she had an appointment already scheduled for the, the next day it was her next pre-planned appointment. So we don't have any indication even from Sam. So her fiance never even came forward to say she's been suicidal. I've been worried about her. And we know that spontaneous suicide can occur. People can commit suicide without anyone that they know ever thinking they were suicidal or without any thoughts or clues toward that whatsoever. But that's where our crime scene is going to be interesting. And the events and uh, situation around her death this day, that's going to be interesting. Do you have anything to that? No. No. Okay. So... We've heard these 911 calls. The one I will point out again um, that you can hear in part one is the very last one that I played on the first episode about when the 911 dispatcher asked Sam uh, about the knife. So he says he found a knife and then immediately she says, whoa, whoa, where is the knife? And he said, it's in her chest. It's right in her heart. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Well, that would also indicate that it's the center of the chest, pretty much. I mean, in general. It so. was. So it actually was, I believe, based on her autopsy reports, quite literally in her heart. And it was just left of center in her upper chest. Yeah. Which would just mean that you would think it would be a little easier to see than, say, on the side of the chest mm -hmm. or her arm, you know, leaning over maybe the, the well and we before. talk about i think your term is is it like leaking when people accidentally kind of say things that they're not yeah necessarily yeah, meaning to the mm -hmm. fact that he said in her heart again and and we've heard if you've listened to uh bc show and then on this one as well we talk a lot of times where and he spoke on it a minute ago there are things you can take note of that don't mean anything people say and do really really weird things and often they are not the murderers they didn't do this more awful thing. So people are weird. That's fine. And, you know, but it's the totality, right? It's a whole picture. So when we take all of these things into account and put them all together, that does paint quite a different color stroke. So when he says it's right there in her heart, in and of itself, 
fine with all the other events surrounding this and details it strikes me as what maybe you've referred to before as leaking because it makes me feel like is that where you needed it to go yeah uh, was in her heart because anyone else i think is freaking out they see a knife do i take it out do i leave it in who did this how did this happen um and when dispatch says where's the knife it's in her chest it's in her chest how can i can i do cpr right like these are the things you would kind of expect. Uh, yes. Yeah. And um, again, it's it's an interesting way to phrase it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he could just be stating mm -hmm. if what if what he's saying is is all truthful, then he's just stating what he's seeing. And it is, in fact, in the chest. And maybe he's assuming, yep, that's that's right there in the heart. Yeah, maybe. So, yeah, uh, that, that. Yeah. And then the 911 dispatcher again, part one, you'll hear the call asks him she tells him immediately like, stop don't you know don't try cpr i think in which case he's probably thinking thank god because clearly he did not sound like he was wanting to do that but she yeah. says do not do cpr hold off on that when she finds out it's in her chest and then uh she says is the knife still in her sam chuckles i would encourage you to listen to this he chuckles and says well, is it still in her i didn't take it out and it's okay I feel it's a condescending tone. Mm -hmm. um, it's a weird laugh. People laugh. People laugh in strange times. People laugh during trauma. People laugh yeah. during shock. People, I've seen people giggle at a bedside of someone dying with no malicious intent. Uh, but he chuckles. And then he says in what I do consider, I'm hearkening now back to the text, which you can't read a tone in text. But when he texts Ellen, you better have an excuse when she's not mm -hmm. answering that door. And then I hear him saying, well, I didn't take it out. There was just like a bit of an attitude yeah. in that, in that comment. Yeah, it does. It sounds like that. I mean, I, I don't, I try to hear We're it in being a different open. way. Yeah. yeah. I try to hear it in a different way, but yes, it definitely another kind of another indicator of just, uh, it's a little counterintuitive maybe to what the average person would say about a loved one. Mm-hmm in in their home uh with this knife in their in their chest right so you guys let me go in and tell you where we're at with this case and why we're doing this part two it's because ellen's death has been ruled a suicide all right so but it was not initially ruled a suicide it was initially ruled a homicide uh sam was asked questions this night we're going to continue to talk about this night he was asked questions by authorities and then he went home and that was it. He was never asked or questioned or talked to again about it. Uh, he will talk about details later. He's living his life. Uh, he works in Connecticut now. He's got a whole new thing going on. Uh, he's never been, quote, a person of interest or a suspect in this case. As far as we know, her parents have been championing her death because they have ever since this uh, questioned this ruling. In fact, will vehemently state that they don't believe it was suicide whatsoever and they have started to conduct their own investigation so we'll let you know where they're at with that but that's why we're going to determine with as much open mind as possible my mind may not be as open as it was last week when i did the first show and i tried to keep it i tried to make sam not be a culprit at every turn in this and every time i keep coming back to this guy but i want to hear what you have to say and what you think so definitely be in the chats uh, let us know, you know, if you're if you're watching live now and later on Instagram for sure or on YouTube, leave us some thoughts. But so that's where we're at current present day 2023. This 2011 death is still ruled a suicide. 
Um, they're saying that Ellen Greenberg did this to herself um, and in, and stabbed herself in the way that we're going to talk about because the manner of death is uh, where this gets incredibly uh, hairy at, at the very least. So let's talk a little bit about her autopsy report, okay? That night, um, Sam called 911. I think I told you at 6.31 p.m., I believe. Dispatcher gets on scene. I mean, I think at like 6.34, by, between 6.34 and 6.40 p.m., she's pronounced dead. She was dead at the scene, dead on arrival. Um, and when authorities get there, Ellen is sitting, like I said, slumped up, cabinets, head face down, arms by her side. Her head was facing uh, north, I believe, and her legs were facing west. Um, and that knife was lodged where Sam said it was to the left of her chest. Uh, so we have an examiner, a medical examiner, investigator is what they call it. You know, every jurisdiction is a little different and weird with what they term things. But this was the medical examiner investigator came to the scene shortly after police got there and, and 911, you know, got there and all that stuff and proceed to, he stays with her. His name is Steve and he stays with Ellen's body the whole time just to make certain that her, um, that the knife doesn't leave her body and that her body is, you know, maintained as best as possible. The integrity of this scene being her human body is maintained. The autopsy eventually shows that Ellen had been stabbed 20 times, uh, eight times in her chest, 10 in the back of her neck, once in her abdomen, once across her scalp. Uh, the knife that they found inside her was a serrated knife. I'm going to show you a picture, guys. Keep in mind when you see this picture, she did not have multiple knives in her. All right. So this is a more current technology 3D rendering um, of what the autopsy found. So they were able to come back and make this, use this computer technology to uh, give us a picture of what that autopsy found, what that would actually look like in terms of knives to her. Let's see here. Did I get a going here yet? Nope. All right. So initially speaking, like I said, the medical examiner did conclude that Ellen had been murdered and ruled this case a homicide. So uh, you are, if you're watching again, these pictures are on Instagram as we speak, but she has a laceration to the back top part of her head. That was, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, around uh, three to four centimeters long. All of these measurements are in centimeters. Uh, quick little cheat guide. One inch is 2.2 centimeters. So you can kind of roughly or grossly estimate that a centimeter is about a half an inch. All right. So keep that in mind when we talk uh, measurements because it actually matters here. So that was what we have. That's what is found to be all of her wounds there. Um, oh, my. What say you, BC, when you see that? So the for everybody listening, to see the illustration, it actually shows just multiple knives in the back and the chest. When you look at it visually, uh, which obviously you want to try to recreate and imagine, one, how the injuries can occur, and then two, if you're looking at it, which investigators look from multiple angles, can, is this something that someone would and could possibly do to themselves? Are they physically able to do that? Right. And then two, if a, if a third party or another person is doing this to them, are they capable of doing that? Yes. it's It actually reads more like an attack from a person 
as opposed to something that would be self-inflicted. Because once you get into self-infliction like that, you have to be able to see, would, would she be able to hold a knife in her hand firmly and then stab herself multiple times in the back and in the back of the neck and cut her own head and then potentially put the, put the knife multiple times in her chest. So if the, if the knife comes to rest in the, in the middle of her chest, which is where he finds it, and the medical, medical examiner investigator, I think, is documenting that the knife is in the chest, then that would mean that the stab wounds start on the back, which one would have to argue if a person is trying to kill themselves with a knife, would they start by stabbing themselves in the back? Or would they just start with cutting their wrist, right. their neck, stabbing themselves in the chest? People have done that in the past. Sure. Um, yeah, it just seems like it will be a lot of additional pain that someone is feeling. And it's, I, I don't know. I would say that it would be very interesting to see what those angles and entries would be of the blade going into the body. So we have those. Uh, I don't have them uploaded here for you guys to see. I will put them on um, Instagram. I sound like a broken record, but I will show you very roguely speaking. Quickly, Gavin Fish is uh, a... He does true crime, like a YouTube podcast and articles and things like that. He will go to the ends of the earth to get documents. So he has all kinds of things. A lot of the documents that I've procured are from him and him alone. Uh, you have to pay to get them. It's one of those kinds of that you can't find them anywhere. But he does a fantastic job. So you will see his watermark on these renderings because these are the, again, this is like the CAD technology, like the computer imagery of what the autopsy found. So these are not actual pictures of Ellen. I say that because they it's it looks really good. The technology is really good. It does look like it would be. Oh, I don't think I can show you this. Let me see if that's even going to work. Can you see? Boy, this is janky. All right. <laughs> so either way, I'll put them on Instagram. I forget my computer's not, or my camera's not right there. But it shows the angle, like you said, of the wounds. Now, these knife like the entry wounds were not all the same so some went left to right some went right to left some went up down some went down up they were of varying depths and we still have that laceration to the back of the head so if she's doing this to herself mm -hmm. she she's just gonna slice her scalp first or somewhere in the midst of it these are things yeah. to keep in mind so i'm not trying to prove that um she did it and i'm not trying to prove that someone else did it I'm trying to see, is it possible that she could have done it? Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's with the broad stroke of saying that we know that people do really wild things, things that you wouldn't expect to happen. Uh, but was this physically possible for Ellen to do? So let's backtrack a little bit on our timeline, though, because this is where things start to really get uh, worth, worth reading about. All right. So we know that Sam exits the gym, uh, as we said, at... Uh, at 526 and we know that he calls 911 around 530 30, or excuse me 630 631 p.m. okay at 614 p.m. so 14 to 16 minutes prior to calling 911 he calls his cousin Sam calls his cousin Kamian Schwartzman 614 p.m. at 626 p.m. okay 12 minutes later Sam's uncle Kamian's father James Schwartzman calls Sam. All right. So Sam calls his cousin and then his uncle calls him. So maybe his 
cousin called his father, right? To call Sam. That's what this sounds to be. Uh, I feel like that's not a big stretch, but either way, however this happened, he calls his cousin and then his uncle calls him. All of this happens prior to Sam calling 911. Does this do anything for you, BC? Yes. So we're saying he's all, we know he's already made entry into the apartment in which this would be, he's seen her. Uh, yeah, because he gets a phone call at, well, okay. Okay. Let me say this. I can't say definitively okay. that he has seen her, but at 626 is when his phone shows him answering a call from his uncle. At 631, he makes the 911 call. So we're saying he answers the call. Now, what I don't have information of is how long the call lasts with his uncle. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was 30 seconds or four minutes. Right. Okay. Um, and that would make a difference. Because mm -hmm. in theory, if this was before he enters the apartment, he still has to have time to kick down the door, get to Ellen, probably look around for a second, and then call 911 at 631. So five minutes after his right. uncle calls him, mm -hmm. he calls 911. Keep in mind that when 911, when uh, I will often say when 911 gets there, I understand 911 is not like a mobile unit coming to the house. But when the first responders arrive on scene, I think it's 634, if I'm not mistaken, it was very, very quickly. Uh, when they arrive on scene, maybe it was 640, um, Sam's cousin, Camion, the one that he called at 614, mm -hmm. is already there. Okay. So his cousin, he calls his cousin who happens to show up at the same time as first responders. Now, what we don't have specifications on is what time the uncle got there exactly, but it was during all this. Mm -hmm. It was either right before the first responders or while they were all getting there, the uncle shows up. One of the reports I read, which I will read to you momentarily, uh, reads from the investigator, the actual typed report from minute of when this happened, that when they arrive on scene, Sam and quote, some family is, I think it says family, um, is at the scene. Mm. So it, it sounds, it reads like the cousin and the uncle were already there. So to answer your question, it sounds yeah. like he's already found her. Which would be another red flag. Um, Why would you find her and call anyone but 911 first? Yeah. Usually most people, as soon as they see something like that, they're calling 911. They're not calling a cousin or an uncle just because that that person is not going to do them any good. They got to get help there. So yeah, though, and obviously for investigative purposes, those are two people you go talk to and you find out, Hey, what was said right. on this conversation? You know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, those, that would definitely be something that they would be looking into. Well, we'll talk about how that worked out for them. Um, I just don't, I don't know. This is wild to me. So, so he calls them or he calls cousin, uncle calls him. They get there. Uh, and that's that. So police do take Sam in for questioning that night. He answers a few questions. Like I said, he leaves and that's all that's really said about that. We have the autopsy. Um, I read to you at least the parts that uh, mattered in that moment, the big stuff, the stab wounds, uh, we know that Stephen Olszewski is the one that was unseen that was there when, you know, and witnessed the knife in her chest at the kitchen um, on the kitchen floor and stayed with her body until she got to the morgue. Um, and then we know that the police do go on and take on the 28th. So two days later, 
They take clothing, blood samples, a diamond ring, some prints, etc. So what happens between the 26th when this happens and the 28th when the police execute a search warrant and grab these things from the home? Well, what happens in between is that on, I want to give you the correct time on this. We know that the autopsy was performed on January 27th at 9 a.m. So uh, just, you know, 12, let's say 15 hours later, her autopsy. In fact, that was the external autopsy. The internal began around 11 a.m. I think I read recently. And then because of that, on the morning of the 27th, so you guys were talking the, the very morning after this happened is when the initial finding was homicide. And so that moment, police execute a search warrant or apply for a search warrant, I should say. Okay. They execute the search warrant the next day on the 28th. Okay. So roughly 34 hours later, the search warrant is executed. In the meantime, though, Sam's uncle, James, that called him and that arrived on scene initially has called property management. He calls a woman named Melissa Ware. She was the property manager at the time. And he asked her if he can get, be allowed inside the apartment uh, to obtain a suit for his nephew, Sam. A side note here, not that it matters necessarily. Uh, maybe it would be too disturbing for his parents, but he was close with his parents. So it sounds like he's very close to his uncle who's calling to get his suit for him, for him to wear to the funeral. Okay. And this is to be fair, often 12 hours, 15 hours after you're, you're not getting your clothes together for a funeral yet. I mean, you're still putting your loved one's affairs in order. You're writing an obituary. You're still calling family and friends. Uh, but the very next morning, his uncle calls the property manager to say, Hey, can I be led into the apartment to obtain a suit for Sam to wear to the funeral? She's a smart cookie. And she's like, Whoa, I don't know about that. So let me call the PPD, the Philadelphia Police Department. She calls them and they say, sure, like we're done there. We're releasing the crime scene. He's welcome to go on in. So he does take a suit. He also takes three laptops, one believed to be Sam's, one believed to be uh, Ellen's personal computer, and one believed to be Ellen's work computer. He also takes two cell phones, one believed to be Sam's, and one believed to be Ellen's. Uh we don't know what else we will never know what else may or may not have in, in that moment. But he was the first one on scene after the scene was quote cleared, which was the very next morning. Uh, so again, that next morning, her death is ruled a homicide per the medical examiner saying like, this is inconsistent with suicide. So if someone else had to have done this search warrant is obtained. Okay. So in fact, when Melissa calls the police to say, can you, you know, can he go in? They say, yeah, we're done with it. In fact, here's the cleaners that we like to use, you know, and gives her the name and number of a professional cleaner that cleans crime scenes. So then James goes in, keep this in your brain. He goes into the apartment that has not yet been cleaned, does what he does. We know what he takes. At least we know some of what he takes. We don't know everything that he could have done in there. The next day that property is cleaned and then the search warrant is executed. That's when they then obtain some Latin fingerprints, some blood that they find, a couple of pieces of clothing. But it's after the place has been professionally cleaned. So what say you there? You know, I had a hard time with that one. It was frustrating me at first. Yeah, but every every death investigation is a little bit different in the sense that your time frame is not always going to be 48 hours, 72 hours, meaning 
you get on scene and you're looking at what you have and it may only take a few hours to process it or a few hours to obtain your search warrant, get your units on scene to process, to do fingerprints, uh, whatever, whatever photograph, whatever you're going to do. So the time frame is a, is, a, is a little strange there in the sense that it seemed quicker. However, the crime scene is contained. It's in an apartment. Right. And potentially, however they're processing it, they may be looking at it through that lens of, we only have two people because the door is locked. You know, mm-hmm. so we're either dealing with him doing this or her committing this to herself. So, um, it is interesting though that I think you'd said that they went back two days later and did a search warrant. Or did well, I- yeah, because when they say that when they say that James, the uncle, can come get a suit, mm-hmm. or they tell by way of the property manager that he's allowed to come get this suit. Uh, the medical examiner has not ruled on their finding yet. So they've not come back to say, I'm looking at this as homicide mm-hmm. only because, look, I got in the weeds with someone on Instagram with this the other day. I understand a medical examiner's job is not to rule um, homicide or not. The medical examiner is given the information they're given. And if in this question, though, it or this case, it was, was this suicide or is this homicide? Those are your choices. Um, it's not always, suicide's not always on the table. Here it was. And so in this case, in this very specific case, the M.E. said that this is inconsistent with suicide. Therefore, it has to be homicide. It obviously wasn't an accident. OK, so because of that, when I say the M.E. ruled it suicide, that's or homicide. Excuse me. That's what I mean by that. They, they've ruled out suicide. So to answer your question, the M.E. had not yet said suicide. Uh, because it's, I mean, excuse me, homicide, because as soon as they did, that's when police were like, Oh, like mm-hmm. got to get a search warrant now. Like now we need to further investigate, which makes me feel like to your point, yeah. they, they treated it like a suicide from day one, like meaning they weren't yeah. treating the crime scene as such that it could have been a homicide. So if your point is that, well, if they've got what they've got, it doesn't matter what it's ruled because they've already done it. Mm-hmm. Well, they sure enough came right back yes to search the home once they heard homicide gotcha okay yeah which which then again you go and we're not part of their investigation we don't sit at the round table we don't have all those notes (laughs) so um with the information that we're given yeah that's exactly what it seems like is then then probably because of that as the medical examiners looking at the wounds and saying this doesn't appear to be self-inflicted maybe because of those angles right like we talked about absolutely all over the back um, well it doesn't i i'm not questioning that the me said that it didn't look like suicide or that they're ruling out medically mm-hmm. or from a patho perspective they're ruling out suicide i don't doubt that at all i guess i'm saying that to me and of course you guys remember i'm a nurse i'm not I'm not a detective or really, I don't do, I didn't work homicides. I don't know. So that's exactly why it's um, great to have BC on the show for this reason. But I personally felt frustrated. I know a lot of you did when we first covered the case last week, it felt so soon that the next day this scene was released. And I think it only felt so soon because they then did come back to Mm -hmm. execute a search warrant after the fact. Uh, And by then it's been professionally cleaned. So like if to your point, they had everything they needed, they wouldn't need to come back and get it. So it feels like they had that tunnel vision of immediately retreating it like a suicide without any option 
mm-hmm. that it could be anything else. Yeah, and when you're working the scenes, and and this goes on in departments where patrol officers are having to secure a scene, and they're standing out there for two or three days, and they're getting frustrated, mad, but they also don't get the details of the investigation because a homicide unit works pretty uh, tight. Compartmentalized, yeah. Yeah, but while they're doing their scene and they're working their information, then they can figure out, okay, hey, we do have surveillance video, so we're going to go back and watch that video. We're mm-hmm. going to see what someone touches. Now we're going to go back and fingerprint that. So some scenes can take days to process, depending on what kind of input you have. So things like the computers, the phone, in this case, um, would be very interesting, obviously, which is. Well, so it wasn't after until after they executed the search warrant that they realized that, oh, well, look, this all these at least five pieces of technology are not here in the home. And then they wind up obtaining them from Uncle James, I believe, on January 29th. So a day after the search warrant was executed, which is fine. But now he's had them for two days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and her computer was not password protected for the record. Um, and this matters because what appeared to be a Google search of hers is something that came in question when her death was then ultimately ruled a suicide once it was changed from homicide to suicide. Um, All right. So that's the original. I'm going to be done with the original idea of the case. And then we got some new fun notes for tonight. So, this is going to be kind of point counterpoint. Okay. It's going to be kind of like, let's see if we can prove that this was or was not a suicide. I don't, it's going to be hard to prove that something is a suicide, but you can almost prove that something cannot be right. So initially speaking, there was a neuropathologist with the last name Rourke, I believe that stated, uh, the terminology was such that even when I first read it, I thought, this makes no sense to me. If anybody has read anything about the human body, this does not make a lick of sense. But it, the neuropathology report initially stated that uh, suicide was possible precisely because if Ellen was taking the knife to the back of her head and getting a bunch of these, some of them were like 0.2 centimeter, which then people argue that those were hesitation wounds. I read that too. I don't think you have like 17 hesitation wounds before you get to the big ones, but either way, um, if she were to take the knife to the back of her head and cut around, we saw that big laceration on the top of her skull and then put the blade a bit deeper into the base of her skull. And if she were then to nick her spinal cord, the initial neuropathology report states that that would render her numb. And if it renders her numb, she will now not feel pain So she will be able to continue to stab herself. This document, this statement is a huge part of what this case hinged on when it was then changed to suicide. Okay. That makes absolutely zero sense. I am not a neuropathologist. I understand that full and well. It makes no sense if you have any understanding of the nervous system of the body. If she were to nick a spine cord, first of all, she's not continuing to stab herself. I'm, I'm done with that. But even if she did, all right, she's... If she's rendered numb, y'all, she's rendered incapacitated. She's not going to be able to grip, uh, use the fine motor to grip this knife. This was a, a slender steak knife. 
and in all accounts, probably slick at this point with her own blood. So she's not going to be able to continue to hold it with her fingers to then proceed to start stabbing her chest and abdomen and ultimately get right between the ribs to her heart. That, that makes no sense at all. But that was the original neuropathology report. And that's very important to know mm -hmm. because then that does change. Uh, at this point, kind of interject wherever you prefer, because I will start to go through a few of the points that I made today uh, that in defense or, or not of suicide. So they were able to retain a portion of the spinal cord. You guys, her parents came back. They were never happy with the idea of suicide. It made zero sense to them. We know that people do kill themselves, though, and their families do not like that and do not expect it and will say that their family member or loved one would never have killed themselves. And then that's when they can be explained how that happened or how that was possible or why it happened, et cetera. In this case, they're saying none of this makes any sense. Um, so they actually enacted their own investigation, kind of launched their, I say their investigation. They started hiring their own uh, expert witnesses, if you will, forensic pathologists, et cetera. Uh, and then essentially like the case was not reopened, but it was, uh, starting to be looked at they could go back and they were privy to go back and look at the the files from the case and the investigation and things like that we do know that a portion of her spinal cord was retained from the autopsy this is not ideal it's not like actually being there and seeing the body you're coming in a few years later and only seeing a portion of it however in the subsequent years after ellen's death her family uh like i said did hire multiple experts in different fields one was dr wayne k ross um dr ross is a neuropathologist he thoroughly examined, you're going to see me reading, I'm reading the notes that I've written on this case, the remaining portion of the spinal cord in the autopsy report. From this, he concluded that this, that her spinal cord would had to have been severed with these wounds, meaning the initial wounds to the back of her neck. How do we know they were the initial wounds? Because the, the quote, fatal wound or the wound that we see uh, the knife in her is in her chest. Okay, so it wasn't started there. For all intents and purposes, everything started back here and went around to her chest. So he's saying that initially speaking, when these when she is first being stabbed by her own hand or someone else's, her spinal cord had to have been severed. If so, she would have been rendered incapacitated fully. Uh, we don't, like I said, have an order of the stab wounds per se, but we do know that the last one, like I said, occurred uh, to her chest. It was approximately four to five inches deep where the knife was still lodged. Um, that's the one that we fully know about. So this rules out suicide in the sense that she could not have severed her own spinal cord and continued to stab herself. It may also explain, I think an Emmy's report said, or use the terminology about not seeing uh, defensive wounds mm -hmm. or that may explain why. So if you sever that spinal cord and now I can't move my arms or she Correct. can't move her arms. Now he's, or the other person stabbing mm -hmm her and now she can't necessarily defend or meaning she could have fallen to the ground immediately exactly because we're going to talk about that yes so if her spinal cord was severed she's losing she's losing functionality right she's not standing her all of that is gone now um so if she were alive she would be in a wheelchair unable to move from the chin down uh with a breathing tube and all the other things right because now at this point basically from that spot down nothing's going to work. So she would have immediately 
hypothet not even hypothetically i mean the guy says he's another neuropathologist he comes back to say like no her spinal cord would have been severed and if that's the case i think it just immediately dropped she's now on the floor so now your crime scene's not up high it's not on the top of these countertops we're gonna talk about that we're now working from the ground okay so he's saying his initial thought is just like we don't even hardly have to look farther this tells me everything i need to know to show at least that it was not a suicide and we can move forward with the homicide investigation we also have Cyril Wett. Okay, so do you know Cyril Wett? Have you heard of him? You may or may not have. Um, I think that once you hear some of his cases that he had been on, you will remember his name because it was kind of familiar to me. He's a forensic pathologist. Cyril Wett was also consulted in the Ellen Greenberg case. Mm -hmm. So he came in. He covered a lot of high-profile cases, uh, including, uh, but not limited to, Sharon Tate, Elvis Presley, Kurt Cobain, Jean-Manuel Ramsey, Philip, oh, the Branch Davidian, uh, incident, Lacey Peterson, Anna Nicole Smith, and notably John F. Kennedy. In fact, he was, he criticized the Warren Commission's findings there. So this guy's been around the block. Um, he's got a lot of experience. He's performed over, I'm sorry, did I say he's had a lot of experience? <laughs> he's performed over 17,000 autopsies during his career. So I'd say he knows a little something. So mm -hmm. Cyril has said, um, upon consultation on the Ellen Greenberg case that in his experience, when people die, and you can speak on this, uh, potentially BC, that generally when people die from suicide by way of knife, they don't usually stab themselves through their clothing. They typically remove clothing first. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's always the discussions about why people take clothes off when they commit suicide. And sometimes it's either state of depression, could be, am I going to hit the right place? So this is going to say, not necessarily yeah. why they would do it, but do you find like, so in his experience, he said almost never does someone, if they're killing themselves by way of knife, almost never do they do mm. it through clothing. Almost always clothing is removed. And I don't right. know if you've experienced yeah. any of that yourself, but, um, or if you've seen anything like that. And if mm -hmm. in your experience, that was, mm -hmm. Okay. Which was also telling, sorry, but to go back to him having to unzip, as he says, the jacket, unzip her jacket or whatever. That that was one of the things I think we had discussed at some point about was the knife being covered up by the, nope. like none of that made sense. It was outside but, of yes. the jacket. So mm -hmm. if in Cyril Weck's professional opinion, after conducting over 17,000 autopsies, uh, I mean, when he says minimal, very little did anyone ever commit suicide by way of knife through clothing, she had to go through two layers of clothing there because she was wearing a t-shirt and a hoodie. Just kind of mm -hmm. keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, so we also have Dr. Henry Lee. You may have heard of Dr. Henry Lee. He was consulted as well. So they, they're hitting, they got the heavy hitters here. Henry Lee became a famous uh, name after years of blood spatter expert testimony. This was his bread and butter. This is what he did. There's been a little controversy on some other stuff, but it wasn't about him not being accurate. It was about him maybe I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, but he worked on cases. Uh, he, he paralleled Dr. Wecht in certain ways, but he also worked on JonBenet Ramsey. He worked on the O.J. Simpson case, Lady C. Peterson. He actually worked uh, on the September 11th forensic investigations. And on he was consulted on the assassination of JFK. I'm just saying that to give you some highlights of these men's career. This is not, they're not pulling people out of a ditch somewhere to come consult on this case. Okay. He was also used to testify as a blood spatter analyst during the Michael Peterson trial, uh, where Michael was convicted of murdering his wife by pushing her down the stairs. 
So he notes that there is actually cast off from the knife and it goes in a downward direction. This would not be consistent with Ellen putting the knife to the back of her neck and pulling back out. She's not going to pull out and pull down your, your arm. Try that. Your arm doesn't, doesn't work quite right like that. You're going to pull out and pull back up. Um, this would be a bit more of an upward motion, right? Yeah, it's almost impossible. Cause I was just thinking. But it's like, back of neck. If, it's not even yeah, back. It's up here. If you even try to go this way, you can't do like it. Like you try to go lower down. Yeah. With that size of a knife. So you've right. got to come from that. Yeah. So yeah. It's again. Supportive. So, right. So, Whoa, my notes are falling. Y'all know if you listen to my show ever that I write all my notes on pieces of notebook paper. We also have the door latch situation. Remember, Sam um, Sam said that he kicked the door in. That's the only way he could get in. First of all, that lock, their theory that when that lock is locked, you know, no one could have killed her and then gotten out and that lock be locked. Wrong, y'all. This was not a slide bar. It wasn't even a deadbolt. These are supposed to be like infallible and they are not. You can in fact stand very much so on the outside of that door, use a rubber band, a coat hanger, a wire, a credit card and flip that bar shut. Okay. Remember here it is. I'll show it to you again if you're watching. Um, but either way, Sam says that he kicked the door in because he could not get in and she wasn't opening the door for him. Well, we have pictures. This is not the picture I thought that I had of it, meaning that I will put it up on Instagram. But the picture I have is the same one, just zoomed in a little better so you can see the hardware. If he were to have kicked the door in, y'all, the paint isn't even like splintered on the door frame. The screws that were holding the hardware in for that lock are, when you were able to look at it more closely, they are loose. They are not removed, not in a way that would then render the door able to be open and screws falling out and these kinds of things. All right. That's, you know, just a side note again, like we're putting all these little pieces together, but this is what matters is, is the entire picture, right? So did Sam actually tell authorities that the security guard was with him? That's what I've wanted to know because we hear there has been some reports that Sam told authorities that the security guard is with him and he busted down this door. I did not think, I thought that that got kind of messed up in translation a little bit, kind of like the telephone game, you know, and by the time mm -hmm. it gets to us to look at, yeah. maybe he never told them that. Because if he did, we have video footage. The security guard has said that, in fact, he did not go. Uh, he told him he couldn't help him open it, and he didn't escort him back up to his residence. He said he never left his post on the first floor lobby, his little security guard, you know, station or whatever, right? And we have video surveillance to back him up on that. That corroborates the fact that he never left. So if Sam were to have actually told authorities that the security guard went with him and was with him when he busted down the door, which I would consider to be a very important detail and a very important person to talk to. I mean, it's the one other person than Sam that you can say was there, right? Surely they would have talked to him, right? Okay. Well, so did he? And if so, why, why wouldn't they have looked into that more? He actually did. Um, and I'm going to read that to you. But on page one, paragraph three of the report taken at the scene from the medical examiner investigator, it states that, quote, an apartment security man was reportedly present during the entry. 
So he either got this information on his own. I doubt it. He probably got this. We talked on this earlier from the detectives, the investigators at the scene. But yes, Sam did tell them that the security guard was reportedly with him. Is there any reason you can imagine? No. Why we're not talking about that more? Uh, No, I don't know. Um, Because if he got that detail wrong, it would mean you don't normally forget that someone's physically standing beside you and entering this apartment. So for him to say that, it's just another red flag. You follow up just like you were saying, and you find out that, in fact, what he's saying is is not true. Well, he would be the only other living person at the scene. Yes. Except for he wouldn't have been because his cousin and uncle were also there. Yes. So there's that. Uh, so is there is there evidence of suicide in this case? We, we don't have evidence that anyone necessarily attacked her. <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't say that that's true, though. I, I disagree because I think we have evidence that she couldn't have done it to herself. Mm-hmm. So if we have evidence she couldn't have done it to herself, then we have evidence that um, someone else had to. Uh, is there any kind of a motive? You know, we've talked about that. There doesn't have to be a motive. It's great if you can think of one um, yeah, to further a case. You, you don't need one. Yeah, but. you don't need one to charge. Uh, it helps to explain things it helps to understand for future investigations but like even in this one you're talking about indicators for for suicide you you don't really have one you don't have any kind of suicide history of ideation you don't have Mm -mm. any uh word documents in fact where she's tried to test or tried to type up a suicide note or a message or anything and then you have the method in which she expires and it's not Mm -hmm not the normal way to commit suicide. Now I will say this on the point counterpoint. I'll tell you that I have, I have an idea of what I think happened. Who am I though? Right. But we all can have an opinion on this. I have a certain opinion, but let's say still the one thing, if I'm going to try my best not to do what we talk about all the time, right? Confirmation bias. If I'm going to try my best to not in my brain, think that Sam did this and make this case wrap around to the fact that he did, I will say if her uncle or his uncle took, her laptop and her phone and all this thing for any kind of nefarious reason or to cover up or hide or whatever. I mean, Oh, that's not, see, this is why we talk these things out because as I'm saying it, I realized that one, I was going to say that I would think almost that he would have used her computer, which by the way, was not password protected to type some kind of a note to type some kind of a something. The reason I won't work is because they're going to see the time that that was done. Scratch that mm-hmm. from the record judge. Um, were you going to say something? No. Okay. So is there any kind of motive? We don't necessarily need that. We know about the, uh, we know about those texts. Let's go back to those texts a little bit because they are a little gross in tone. I'll be honest. I've been angry with people before. I've sent ugly texts. I mean, I'm not always an angel y'all not, not even close, but I don't like the way he worded these things. They did sound a little threatening. It sounded like he was used to talking to her a certain kind of way Mm -hmm. to be fair. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's kind of how he talked to that dispatcher when he says that he hadn't removed the knife, the way it was a, a, I don't know, women, I think you might've heard this tone before from someone like it's a, it's a condescending tone and it's kind of gross. So there were also accounts, I'm going to put these photos up as well, of bruising and the autopsy speaks on it. She had very, she had multiple bruises on her body um, in varying stages of healing. Okay. So it's not like I can say they all came from the night of her death. 
but because she had multiple bruises in various stages of healing, we can, it can shed a light or give us a bit of an inkling toward potentially a domestic violence situation. Maybe he was a bit heavy handed with her. Uh, we don't know that. We cannot say that for sure. Uh, but these bruises look suspect uh, at the least. We'll talk a little bit more about them momentarily. Um, we did have her face facing north and her legs facing west when authorities got there. She had on a zipped up hoodie, t-shirt, sweatpants, brown Uggs. She was fully dressed down to her shoes. All right. She was standing at the kitchen counter, y'all. There's a picture from the crime scene that shows a bowl of blueberries and a half-peeled um, orange cut in half. It looks like a clementine or something small. Uh, so if we're going to say that she, it was just spontaneous suicide, which can happen. She's wearing her shoes. She's standing in the kitchen, making herself an afternoon snack. Her stomach was empty. We learned, though, in the Hendrix case that we can't use stomach contents to pinpoint a time of death, right? But we mm -hmm. have a time of death here vaguely. So, um, but her stomach was empty. So she had not recently eaten. So it looks like she's preparing herself a snack. Uh, and she's just going to say, you know what? I'm done. That's it. Like, be done with my life as I stand here at the kitchen with my orange. And I'm just going to yeah. take a stab in the back of my neck. Okay. This is something I noticed in the, when I was reading the documents that I obtained about the scene that says that there were, I, this is kind of brushed over, but this is interesting to me. There were eyeglasses on the floor next to her. This doesn't make sense to me either way, mm -hmm. because if she killed herself, I'm not saying that her glasses couldn't have come off of her head, but if she was either <laughs> pick, pick whichever one Sam said, if she was either lying flat on her back, like he said she was, or she was lying slumped over at the cabinets, like he said he found her, uh, her, her glasses wouldn't be on the floor next to her if, if she had been stabbing herself. Um, if they were on the counter and no one was wearing them and she stabbed herself. I mean, I guess unless she grabs the counter as she continues to stab herself and her hand slides, we're, we're stretching here. If she's wearing them or they're on the counter and someone attacks her, these glasses could be on the floor. Mm -hmm. To me, the glasses on the floor still paint more of a picture of her being attacked than her committing suicide. Yes. We can't hang her. We can't hinge anything on this, but it's mm -hmm. just another piece, right? Um, she had a scrunchie on her right wrist. Nothing tells me anywhere. You might have read differently. I can't find out if it was bloody or not. She did have a little bit of blood to her right palm. I want to know if she was left-handed or right-handed. I feel like I've read that she was right-handed. I cannot say that with certainty. And I say that because if she is stabbing herself multiple times, if she's got her arm up in the air going into her neck and she's right-handed with a scrunchie here, that's going to be covered in blood. No reports state that it is. Mm -hmm. And the reports do state that the front of her clothing, the front of her uh, pants and the tops of her boots have blood on them. Mm -hmm. So they specify that they don't specify the scrunchie. Yeah. If she was stabbing herself. It, should have blood on it. Yeah. And again, that's crime scene. When you're working at crime scene, you're looking at all that. Right. You're looking at what does the blood look like inside in her is hand? It, is it dripping from a wound or right. is it smeared? Made? Yeah. Right. Her right boot does have blood on the sole. Um, I think that could have happened whether she did this to mm -hmm. herself or someone else did it. Uh, her right hand did have blood on it. Uh, the blood was mainly confined to the area of her body on the floor. I've shown this picture before, guys, but, you know, if you 
if you have a child that's busted their lip, I don't have it. I'll put it up. Then, you know, bust your lip or let's say busted their head on the corner of a table. It bleed your face and head are so vascular. They bleed a lot just from one, right? One incident. So the, what the picture that we saw with the idea of that many stab wounds, I feel like there would be an incredible amount of blood on the floor. Um, there really kind of wasn't, like I said, it was kind of contained to around her, uh, like her bottom there on the floor, right where her body was. Uh, there were, or there was, excuse me, um, some blood under her and on the face of the cabinets behind her. And that makes sense, right? Because the back of her neck was stabbed. Her hair was bloody back there per the report. Uh, she would have blood on her back, meaning she would then have it on the face of the cabinets that she's leaning against. She There were two separate drops of blood spatter on the granite countertop above her. Two. Mm -hmm. That is all. Would you, I know you're going to say you weren't a spatter expert or a forensics guy. Get that. <laughs> you're a psychic. But <laughs> I've heard you say it before. Mm -hmm. But in your experience, I feel like if she's standing there doing this to herself over and over again, we're going to find more blood on the countertop than we do. Yes, I would assume so. And that's why I say our scene is more at floor level mm -hmm. because it sounds like exactly what that last neuropathologist said. It sounds like pretty quickly on, probably after the laceration on the top of her head, after a few of those little nicks, that spinal cord mm -hmm. was severed and she dropped, meaning there wasn't time or opportunity for blood to get up that high. OK, so everything else is down below. Everything else we're looking at is on the floor. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the knife block. I've shown you the picture of that where she was standing at the kitchen counter, cutting up her snacks. Run low on time here. Um, the knife block was actually on its side. So this is what you would think of. What a lot of us have at home, a kind of a heavier wooden knife block. It's lying on its side. There were two clean knives found in the sink. These are believed to have fallen out of the knife block, meaning that it got tossed over. Two knives flew out. The knife that was found inside um, lodged in Ellen's chest was consistent with the knives that were found uh, in that knife block. Um, so then, of course, the assumption would be that if you're looking at this not as suicide, that someone quickly grabbed a knife out of this block, rendering it knocked over on its side. Mm -hmm. Two knives fall out with enough force that knives fly out of it into the sink and, and begin what they're doing. OK. Um, she had 100 mils of urine in her bladder. Uh, that's important to me. I, I made note of that. I then went back and kind of looked it up myself because I'm not sure when you first get the urge to urinate, because I was thinking if she feels like she I, this might sound silly. I feel like I couldn't. I understand how bizarre this sounds, but I don't see someone committing suicide when they know they have to pee. Like, I feel like you would do that first. And it sounds ridiculous, but I can't yeah. imagine you standing there like in the discomfort of needing to go to the bathroom and doing that. But you don't generally get the urge to urinate in case you want to know until right until you've got between 200 and 240 mils of yeah. uh, urine in your bladder. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we know that um, I did look into the fact is could there have been a shower at the gym? OK, so could Sam have done this, gotten some blood on him, uh, changed clothes, maybe put some bloody clothes in a duffel bag, walk down to the gym. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's where this stuff goes. We don't have any reports of the trash at the gym or anything anywhere else in that apartment yeah. being um, being looked at. Mm -hmm. So could he have done that? Maybe he showered at the gym. Um, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. As of this week, I called the Venice uh, flats apartments. They've got now got a different name. 
Uh, they currently do not have showers in their gym, which actually surprised me. It's a pretty dope little spot. I thought that they would. Uh, and in fact, to the best of the knowledge of the clerk that I spoke with, they did not also have showers in the gym back in 2011. So that's fine. But I don't think that that's a deal breaker. I don't think he had to shower in the gym. That's just kind of like an idea that could have happened. I do think he could have taken his clothes off and washed up at home. And you know how I know he could have washed up at home? Because no luminol test was performed at all. So when I talk about the lack of blood around Ellen on the floor there, it could have been cleaned up, thrown in a dirty duffel bag. I'm mm -hmm. going to the gym, security cameras, and everything's disposed of downstairs. Like I said, that wasn't searched. And no luminol testing was done at home. Uh, I am getting short on time for tonight, so that's why I'm kind of running through these a little quickly. Uh, interesting, though. So the original neuropathologist, right, that said that nonsense about her spinal cord being nicked and her being rendered numb so she could commit suicide without pain. Most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. We actually have that pathologist that came back to say, whoa, 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 I, I didn't do that. I didn't conduct that report. In fact, she says, um, this is an email that she sent on July 12, 2018, when this case was starting to be reinvestigated per her family. Okay. And she says, Hey, uh, Stephanie, she says, Stephanie, I was a civil service employee of the medical examiner's office from 77 to 78 until 2004. One of my trainees takes over. She explains this a little bit. And she says, I do not recall exactly when he left, but he then went on to Los Angeles, blah, 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 and asked me to whether, asked me to take on his responsibility. This was done on a contractual basis. As you guys, she had another job doing other things, but she would be contracted in for these cases. She says each case was billed on the basis of whether I did only a gross examination or whether a microscopic one was done. A detailed invoice was prepared after the report was submitted, and that invoice would contain the case number, the uh, OME case number, the name of the decedent, the date of completion, and the charge. She said, if there is no neuropathology report in the case file and no record that I charged for an examination, I would conclude that I did not see the specimen in question. Uh, she goes on to say that she has no recollection of this case anyway and there was no invoice meaning she was like no i get paid for my work and i would have a very detailed invoice and there's not one for this and nor do i remember it uh just from memory alone and she says uh she just goes on to talk about her career a little bit she said i hope this helps she's actually gone back to say that the report that stated that she said that in 2011 had her name spelled wrong Ooh. so that's yeah. ugly yeah, yeah yeah that's ugly um we also have a report where, and then we're going to start to wrap this up uh, in four and a half minutes. Uh, we have a report that said that's from the new investigators that her parents have hired on to Dr. Osborne. He was the original medical examiner who cited this a homicide and then changed it to a suicide. Let me just tell you one thing in case you missed part one, but if you did, please go back and listen because it's, it gives you more details on this case and makes it a little bit more um, interesting in that sense. Let me tell you a little bit what happened. Dr. Osborne originally ruled this a homicide. Like I said, in April, I think it was April 4th of that same year. So four months later, there was a very quiet, it's described as hushed, 
quiet secret meeting that included a couple of lawyers, a judge and a couple of other people. The medical examiner was there on board with this. Um, after this very quiet meeting, as it's deemed the next day, this was amended to become quote, a suicide where it's been ever since. Uh, actually, Dr. Osborne has come back to say that if he in fact did not think that the security guard was with Sam the day that he found Ellen there, that he would have never changed it to a suicide. So that's actually a very big mm -hmm. piece of information that along with this neuropathology report, okay, which I don't think he believed because nobody with any sense would. But let me tell you a little something. When that was changed, when they had this little quiet meeting and it gets changed to a, to a um, suicide, Remember old Uncle James who came, who was called, who called Sam and then shows up during the actual investigation and then comes back for a suit, but takes technology with him. Would you like to know what he did for a living? Well, at that time in 2011, he had been a former prosecutor. He was vice chairman of the board of directors of the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transport Authority and went on to become what he was described as politically important at that time. And he then became the president judge of the Pennsylvania Court of Judicial Discipline. That's right. He could spack the wrists of other judges at this time. So, you know, take that for what you will. It's interesting to know that. So this guy had his fingers in some things and he was real quick to call Sam before Sam called 911 to tell what he found. All right. So I am going to read you quickly what was what was sent to Dr. Osborne, um, basically from the family to and their experts they hired to plead with Dr. Osborne to change his finding. Forgive me as I have it saved here on my phone and it's very, very, very small. And my eyes are not. Um, he basically goes on to say that there are numerous concerns in the original support uh, report and that he urges him to change it. And he says, um, according to Dr. Ross, it is very unlikely that several of the wounds suffered by Ellen could have been administered by Ellen herself. It's category and plot categorically impossible for these wounds to have been self-inflicted. Um, this goes on specifically talking about the severed spinal cord. It goes into detail. I might put a reel up later reading this to you guys because it is worth hearing. And he says, uh, talking about the investigators relying heavily on the conclusions of Dr. Rourke, that would have been the initial, now we know, erroneous neuropathological report that was written and how that was never even a thing. He does say, the condition of the crime scene raised several serious questions for the independent experts. Uh, they support a finding of homicide rather than suicide. And among these would be the heavy knife block that was knocked over like we talked about and uh, saying that essentially this wouldn't be from someone alone in a kitchen preparing for a fruit salad snack. Um, he does talk about the wounds more specifically in the way they were like their traje trajectory into her body and their position and their depth and these kinds of things and how that would be physically impossible for someone to do to herself or himself. Um, Sam Goldberg was never considered a suspect or a person of interest in this case. This happened in January of 2011. Her family is still fighting. They actually, in 2019, um, tried to reopen this case and have that medical examiner finding change. That's from that letter that I just read you that the experts they hired. Um, 
said and let's see here they're actually they just this past september thank you they just this past september uh of 2023 unfortunately got a ruling that the case would stay just as or the finding would stay as a suicide and they do plan to take it to the pennsylvania supreme court they're not done there but sam goldberg the fiance of ellen at the time uh was married almost exactly three years to the day he was married in early january of 2014 uh to a lady who owns a men's designer cloning company, clothing company in New York. He works in Connecticut. I believe they've actually had a couple of children. Uh, so he moved a little quickly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't try to judge that, but my goodness. Uh, I do encourage you. I will put pictures of all the things I talked about up on the Instagram, on the Andrea Uplate Instagram page. Uh, I think most notably, I don't want us to brush over the bruising because I think that that's important if we're looking at some potential history there uh, with Sam. It's something we will never know. No one, none of her family knew of any potential problems with them in terms of physical abuse or anything like that. Uh, I think that often is the case. I think an argument could be made that she, not long before her death, had asked her parents if she could come back home to live. She still wanted to be engaged to him. And she said that he was not a problem. But she also wanted to come back home to live. And usually a woman who's about to get married is not wanting to live somewhere without her fiance. Uh, definitely not back home with her parents. I wonder if that might have been the cause of the anxiety that they were seeing in her uh, rather than her first grade students. This is all speculation. I don't love doing that, but I think it's interesting to note there are what you call them what you will. They look like finger uh, clusters of three bruises on insides of her wrist, on her right thigh, on her right abdomen on her upper arm, um, indicative of her being grabbed. That's exactly what it looks like. Uh, again, on their own, we can't say that that's what it is, but when we look at the whole picture, it does look interesting. I'm clumsy as all get out. I understand that people can bruise. I run into things. I ran into something coming into the studio tonight and may or may not have a bruise on my hip because of it later. Right. But I mean, I can't think of any other reasons that you would have like fingerprint bruising on your wrist. Um, or your abdomen or your thigh. If, mm -hmm. if it's not caused by hands. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So take it for what you will. You guys, thanks for listening. BC, we are super happy to have you on. Um, do you have anything in conclusion? I do not. Uh, bring me back anytime. I'll, I'll talk. All right. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> anytime you guys can check out BC Sanders um, at the same Instagram handle, also at the Disruptors with BC and Ski. You can find them on their YouTube channel of that name and also an Instagram page as well. Go give them a like and a follow and a subscribe and all that good stuff. Also subscribe to this page, Andrea. Up late, y'all. It's free. You can subscribe to 7 million YouTube channels, all right, where everybody's trying to grow and that's how you do it. Um, and it is a freebie. So don't worry about any of that. Um, but we love you guys. Thanks for listening. And I uh, can't wait to hear your thoughts on this case. So until next Tuesday, y'all have a good night. Okay. <laughs>